Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze the music, legacy, and cultural impact of all your favorite pop stars. I'm your host, DJ Louis XIV, and I'm a DJ, writer, and all-around pop music fanatic. I've spent my entire life and career thinking about, dissecting, and being obsessed with pop stars. Their music, their legacies, how they relate to one another, to the larger pop musical landscape, and to culture more broadly. What separates an icon from a mere superstar? Why do some careers become the soundtrack to our lives, and why do others flop? Whose work and legacy transcends time, and whose feels stuck in it? Every episode of Pop Pantheon, we'll devote an entire episode to a pop icon. From titans of the genre like Beyonce and all the way down to uh, lesser titans like Nicole Scherzinger. Each episode, you'll hear a little breakdown from me and then some distinguished guests and I will chop it up about their careers, discographies, public personas, live performances, music videos, feuds, tweets, you name it. And at the end, we'll turn pop into fantasy football, make our final judgment and place them in the official pop pantheon. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Bot Pantheon. This, of course, is your hostess with the Moses, DJ Louie. I want to set out here by just thanking everybody who's listening to the podcast. Last week was Pop Pantheon's biggest week yet. And I know there's a ton of new people out there listening to us. I want to thank Dunzo Podcast for mentioning us. Just thrilled that you're all here and I'm just having the most fun doing this and making the show for everybody. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for enjoying. Couple quick housekeeping things. First off, thank you again to everybody that listened to the new mini-sode and sent me questions for that. I loved recording that and I loved answering all of your fantastic, thoughtful questions. I hope you guys liked it too. If you have questions for me, either related to this episode, related to past episodes, related to anything pop, related to the Pantheon, please let me know what they are so I can answer them on air. You can send them to me at poppantheonpod at gmail.com or you can DM them to me at either DJLOUIEXIV on Twitter or Instagram or poppantheonpod mainly on Instagram. There is a Twitter, but I, I can't with that Twitter. So that's that. Also, please do not forget to come tonight, October 7th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern to the Discord chat. We've been doing Discords after each episode and they are so much fun. All the Pop Pantheon folks get in there. We talk about all kinds of shit. We talk about the episode. We talk about non-related, pop-related topics. We talk about anything anyone wants to bring up. A group of very smart, thoughtful, funny listeners come together and we all sort of break down whatever and last week Lindsay Weber from Who Weekly showed up which was a great treat and speaking of Lindsay if you're in New York on October 22nd or 23rd or here in LA on October 28th I'm DJing two after parties for Who Weekly's shows on their tours so please 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 come see me there they're free to get into you don't have to ha- go to Who Weekly Show to come to the party. All the links for that are in my bios and will be in the show notes of the show, as will all the other links I talked about, the Discord, etc., etc. Last thing is, please rate, review, Pop Pantheon on Apple Podcasts. Your ratings and reviews are so funny, smart. I love them, and I really, really, really need them because they help the podcast get 
recognized by the algorithm on Apple Podcasts and then placed on the homepage. Other people can find the podcast. It's on the charts. It's where people discover Pod Pantheon. So please, if you would, leave me a five-star rating, leave me a review, tell me who you want me to feature on the podcast, and even, you know, tweet about the podcast, Instagram about the podcast. All of that really, really helps, and I am forever indebted to you for doing that. So thank you, thank you, thank you. So that's all from me right now. This is a fantastic episode about a erstwhile but truly deserving subject of pop music, uh, Tony Braxton, who I absolutely worship. And I'm so glad to be able to devote some solid time to, to explaining to you guys why I love her so much and why she deserves your attention. So without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon, Tony Braxton. Tony Braxton, one of the great big-voiced divas of the 90s, is often referred to as the Queen of Heartbreak, and it's a title that suits her well for multiple reasons. Yes, during the peak of her 90s success, she was known primarily for her signature melodramatic ballads and sultry mid-tempo R&B bangers, which often portrayed a woman paid dust by the men in her life. But her career, which was derailed by mistreatment by many of the men in her professional sphere, also bore out the image of a mega-talented woman unwittingly thwarted by sorrow. Toni Braxton released her self-titled debut in 1993 and became an instant R&B pop crossover sensation. Aided closely, as she would be throughout most of her career successes, by a team of the leading R&B producers and songwriters of the day, Babyface, L.A. Reid, and Daryl Simmons, Tony's album featured a murderer's row of early 90s classics like Love Shoulda Brought You Home, Another Sad Love Song, You Mean the World to Me, and Breathe Again all of which played on her persona as a heartbroken woman who powered through pain with her distinctive husky contra-alto voice. The album sold 10 million copies worldwide and made Braxton a superstar diva to rival the greats of her day like Whitney, Mariah, and Celine. followed her debut three years later with the 1996 blockbuster Secrets. One of the definitive R&B albums of the decade, Secrets brilliantly and often thrillingly showcased Tony's two primary motifs, the operatic R&B balladeer and the slinky mid-tempo chanteuse. The record was an even bigger smash than her debut, selling 15 million copies worldwide and featured two of the 90s most indelible number one hits. The babyface written and produced club banger You're Making Me High and the Diane Warren penned schlock masterpiece Unbreak My Heart, which was the number one song in America for 11 weeks and was, at the time, the biggest hit ever by a solo artist. While Secrets launched Tony into the stratosphere, her personal and professional life unraveled. 
Due to some bad record deals signed early in her career and some mismanagement of her finances, Tony walked away from two of the biggest albums of the 90s and nearly penniless. This turmoil caused her to wait four years between Secrets and its follow-up, 2000's The Heat. By then, the music landscape had changed dramatically, and the pristine, adult contemporary adjacent R&B on which Tony had made her name had gone out of fashion. While The Heat, which found Tony mostly ditching primary collaborator Babyface for other trendier producers and songwriters, did not make the impact of her first two albums, it did feature her last crossover smash, The Dark Child Produced He Wasn't Man Enough, which reached number two on the Hot 100. Heat's middling success, Tony's output in the 2000s represented a major fall from grace. Her next three albums, 2002's More Than a Woman, 2005's Libra, and 2010's Pulse, found Tony again leaving Babyface behind, and while each featured some gems, they failed to make any notable impact. During this period, however, Tony launched a successful Vegas residency, and in 2011, she premiered her reality show along with her family called Braxton Family Values, which became more of a hit than any of her music had been in that last decade. Recently, Tony's music career has seen, if not a commercial resurgence, a notable critical one. In 2014, she reteamed with Babyface for their critically acclaimed concept album, Love, Marriage, and Divorce, a return to the champagne and anguish R&B of their early work together, which won Best R&B Album at the Grammys the following year. Her last two albums, 2018's Sex and Cigarettes and 2020's Spell My Name, were similarly well-received by critics and refocused Tony's music on her strength as an evocative, sultry diva with one of the most singular voices in modern pop. Tony Braxton has sold over 70 million records worldwide and is one of the best-selling R&B artists in history. She's won seven Grammy Awards, nine Billboard Music Awards, seven American Music Awards, and numerous other accolades. She has 10 R&B Top 10s, six Billboard Hot 100 Top 10s, and two number one hits. Here with me on the podcast once again to discuss the Queen of Heartbreak's career and legacy is none other than Jezebel's own Rich Jezebel. All right, so I'm here again with Rich Jezebel, senior writer for Jezebel. Rich, welcome back to Pop Pantheon. Thanks for having me back. Oh my God, my pleasure. We had quite a catharsis last time, I felt like, breaking down yeah. Madonna's <laughs> last 15 years. <laughs> yes, this will be less emotionally fraught but um, from us, but no less from the source, I think, who is, if nothing else, emotionally fraught. Yeah. <laughs> what a good point. The queen of emotional fraughtness. But I, right. and also like, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a tragic character in some ways. You know, when I was going back through her story, I was like, wow, this is a woman who's really had to like overcome, not just like, obviously the adversity that all humans overcome in their lives or, or 
whatever artist overcome in their artistry but like she was the victim of so many like schemes and men and like music industry shit that like fucked her career up it feels like i mean she came up penniless after having two of the biggest albums of the 90s uh because of yeah. shitty record deal stuff. And then, of course, she signed to Blackground, which until recently was holding some of her better mid-period music hostage as they did to Aaliyah, Tank, another series of, you know, influential R&B artists of that period. And Tony is like part of that sort of like when she emerged in the early 90s, she was part of that sort of big voice diva wave of Whitney, Mariah, Celine. And I feel like in some ways she's probably like the most underrated or under-celebrated of the batch. Yeah, on, on her behind the music, Ellie Reed put it like this. Clive had Whitney, Tommy had Mariah, and we had Tony. Right. But but I feel like in public imagination, and I think we're going to be able to unpack this throughout this conversation, she's kind of the most erstwhile of the bunch somehow. Well, you, you kind of had to be there for her, right? I don't think people today can appreciate what she meant to the culture looking back because there was really a, a cliff and her career just went off of it, you know? I, yeah. I don't think I think kids today probably have no concept. I mean, kids today who have no concept who Madonna is are certainly not right. going to know who Tony <laughs> yeah. Braxton is. And there's a lot of kids who are just like I mean, I've I've, I've sometimes I pull children uh, and I say, do you know who Madonna is? And they're like, no, it's just really interesting to me because yeah. I can't even conceive of a world. But there is one and it's. But right I think now. that they probably know Madonna's hits, even if they're not totally clear that it's her. Like at right. least like like they like they would know Holiday if they heard Holiday. You know what I mean? Right. Or yeah. or even like Hung Up. And I definitely feel like kids would recognize the great Whitney songs and some of those great Mariah re- records. Like have lived on in a way that I feel like Tony has been like lost to memory to yes. a lot of people. Yeah, it's 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 almost bizarre. Well, I wonder, you know, and I think we should definitely talk about this as we, like, unfurl her story, but I I kind of wonder how much of it has... Well, first of all, I do think there's a racialized element to her. Not that the other divas weren't black... Many of... Most of them black women. Whitney was a black woman. Mariah was a black woman. But I feel like Tony's sort of, like, squarely R&B-focused emergence, and, like, she's the most overtly R&B-focused of those divas, in a sense, at least in terms of how she was established initially. I know the others moved into that direction eventually, but I wonder how that's played into it. Like, she's the least pop, I guess. Yes, and so much of what was, you know, what made R&B really attractive in the 90s has become, has has gone out of style. I, I haven't seen this clip, but from what I understand, in one, in some reality show that Tamar is in, I don't know if it was her own or her thing about her relationship or Braxton Family Values, she goes into a studio to record and she's like, I can't do Melisma because kids don't like it. So. Oh. Yeah. And so like that, you know, you listen to a lot of R&B today and it's just sort of like flat in affect, you know, um, in terms of the vocalist. And that is one thing Tony Braxton never was. So I think it's even hard to understand, probably from a young person's perspective, why she was even popular at all, let alone to the extent that she was. Not to mention that like contemporary R&B is so influenced by contemporary rap that it's almost like a melodic and also focused way more on words 
and sort of personalized lyrics than it is on sort of big voice singing talent and also broad-based melodrama, which is like what Tony and Mariah and Whitney were sort of trading in in their early ballads. And I guess also I think it would be important now that you mentioned it to break down for the children like what melisma is and like what like kind of where it came from and what the sort of like wh- what is melisma. You know, it's it's what would more commonly be called a run. Uh, the the idea of extending your voice often in a single breath to hit several notes to go up and down. This generally intensifies as the song goes on so that singing these wordless emotions by the end, ad-libbing them, is the diva's way of improvising. This comes from gospel directly. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think you could probably... It's not a stretch to say that Aretha Franklin essentially originated it in pop or at least made it so popular as to be indelible. If Aretha holds a note, she's bending the note usually, right? <laughs> you know, for for more than a second. Right. So, and I think the same could be said for Mahalia Jackson. I don't think that she sang a song without some kind of melisma. You know, as this as this evolved over time, it became a kind of American Idol-y way right. of showing chops without not without necessarily expressing emotion became kind of trite there are obviously people who can do it and there are people who can't uh yeah. you know if, if demi lovato is giving me melisma i'm not necessarily believing right. them right right so in order for it to be actual melisma it can't just be the sort of vocal acrobatics it has to emanate from like a soulful genuinely soulful place yes and i guess we can't go a step further without bringing up mariah's debut single vision of love which like while it may be disputed uh how soulful that actually is it is the gold standard and the inflection point for melisma in modern pop Yeah, and and we also can't forget the way that Mariah was kind of critically panned for pantomiming what a diva was. And, and I would argue that it wasn't even until her voice started to go a little bit that she actually became soulful. It didn't matter if there was emotion in back of it because the voice was so powerful. Right. Um, now I think she's become a really, really good soul singer. Right. And also I think Melisma, like in the Aretha Mahalia mold, was seen as an expression of emotion. Whereas I feel like by the time we get to sort of vision of love as like a expression of like Melisma's crowning moment in pop culture. And again, like all of the American Idol use of it sort of stems from these diva ballads that follow vision of love. They stem from the Whitney songs. They stem from the Mariah songs. They extend from the Tony songs. I mean, these, that form of singing created like what is happening on American Idol. They're all copying them. But when it, but when it came to those nineties divas using it, as you were sort of getting at, it became sort of used as a cudgel in terms of like the technical perfection that a a singer like Celine Dion brings to her music, but not something that is emanating from like, you know, 
I guess in the case of Aretha or Mahalia Jackson, like the inspiration of God or whatever the fuck they were singing from, which right. is where the craft of melisma originated. So this big voice, pop, soul, R&B crossover, melismatic, balladry music that is sort of canonized in the 90s by Mariah and Whitney and then subsequently by Tony Braxton. What is the origin of this movement? And I guess like, what is it reacting against in a sense? Well, so there's like plenty of this happening in the 80s. You know, uh, Stephanie Mills had a very viable career. Anita Baker uh, is another kind of story. She's not exactly a powerhouse in terms of range, but she has this undeniably amazing voice that still for the tone alone it wows people you know and is doing something kind of different as well And is a real precursor to Tony's voice. Is a real precursor to Tony's voice. Tony actually kind of like envisioned a world in which Anita Baker went a little bit more pop and had like exponentially more success. Right. Um, but I think I think what this what this '90s phenomenon of like the vocal, where it becomes like where songs become uh, harmony, is just like incredibly incredibly knit. Mm -hmm. Um, is I I think it's a backlash to a lot of what we saw in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s with like various lip sync controversies, the takeover of dance music and the idea that people couldn't really sing and it didn't really matter, um, including people like Paula Abdul and to some Mm. extent... Janet, there was like a little bit of a thing with that, although Janet, uh, uh, Janet, uh, that's not a fair reading of Janet's vocals. No, 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 but but she's not a powerhouse. With Janet, it's not, it's not about vocal talent. That's not why exactly, and and she and she kind of got mixed in. Uh, mixed up in there because she was an early purveyor of lip syncing, you know, in the right. Rhythm Nation 18 tour, she was lip syncing and that was right. very, very early on. So lip syncing becomes a very widespread, visible practice, um, you know, going to concerts, but also with these controversies, you know, Paul Abdul was sued. There was Millie Vanilli. There was all of the Martha Wash stuff with Black Box and CNC Music Factory, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. And then we we find in, you know, the early 90s, around 92, around Tony Braxton's debut, this huge emphasis on the voice in pop. You know, and Mariah helps shepherd it in, too. Right, right. Okay, so let's let's talk about Babyface for a second, because at this moment, R&B, and I guess hip-hop to a certain degree, are becoming more central to popular music. Like, it's crossing over more. You have yeah. sort of the, the, the R&B at this moment is becoming extremely central to pop music. I mean, I think probably you could t- look at Bobby Brown. You could look at, like, a series of artists that are causing this to happen, and one of those is Babyface as both, I guess, an artist, but most importantly, as like a producer and writer so what's babyface's story and what role is he playing in sort of like this new wave of r&b that's becoming like kind of the central one of the central points in popular music during like the late 80s and early 90s uh he you know babyface started in a group called the deal or at least or very early on there was a group called the deal which had a huge hit that crossed over called two occasions was through that that he met Ellie Reed, right? They were in the deal together. They become a production team uh, very early on. I mean, you know, I think that you could argue that Babyface's output 
if you think about Babyface's career, it's all about writing songs and producing songs for other people. But, you know, Babyface's second album had a few really, really big hits on pop radio, including It's No Crime. Uh, Tender right. Lover went top 20, I think. And then Whip Appeal is like a prototypical Babyface ballad. So, so there's a few things about Babyface's production style. The one that really stands out is this. I've never really been able to quite wrap my head around exactly what the keyboard sound is, but it's kind of a hollow bell-like sound that you'd mm. hear. I mean, it was basically like that was his, you know, back in the day, people didn't say like Babyface in the beginning of the song because they produced it. Right. But that was like his signature. <laughs> A lot of Babyface songs weren't, were more like on the mid-tempo ballad tip. There, there's kind of upbeatness even when they were ballads, and there's a sweetness to the to them as well. I think I think at the time, harsher critics probably thought it was like generic and kind of like right. watered down. Right, like but adult I think contemporary it, leaning almost. Leaning sense. toward that way, yeah. Right. But I think in retrospect, it's just kind of nice R&B, you know? Right, and also like structurally perfect songwriting. Like if you're going to like teach a class on yes. songwriting 101, yeah. like you were going to teach these babyface songs in that class. Probably. You feel you feel the changes in your stomach like a roller coaster kind yeah. of thing. Just like real <laughs> kind of like satisfying earworms. Mm stuff mm-hmm. you know just prodigiously right so okay so we have this one mode of baby face songs of this era that are kind of these like shimmering mid-tempo r&b songs that are collapsing a line between pop and r&b and hip-hop to some degree but then we also have him kind of making these new jack swing songs for artists like bobby brown right So New Jack Swing is coming up and Babyface and L.A. Reid are offering uh, a kind of like sleeker take on it. Uh, There's something about like the Teddy Riley early productions that's a little bit raw, a little Mm -hmm. bit like smacks you in the face with the snare mm-hmm. whereas right. like you where know, like this is kind of like suits yeah and not dancing too hard at the club you know smooth smooth yeah so babyface is becoming kind of known for these two modes and becoming a very successful solo artist in his own right and maybe even more importantly a writer for others and thus becoming kind of an instrumental nexus point in the sort of collapsing of boundaries between r&b pop and hip-hop to some degree And, you know, under the guise of these sort of structurally perfect, melodic gems that are, like, somewhere on the line between, like, adult contemporary and cool music, but, like, are nonetheless smash hits. Is that an accurate description of the babyface movement, would you say? Definitely. That sounds right to me. So, let's talk about Tony Braxton and the Braxton. So, what is Tony Braxton's emergence into music like i mean she's part of this musical family singing in church and stuff right singing in church yeah i mean the the roots are like both of her parents are pastors to some degree her father more so i don't really quite understand the hierarchy and they weren't even allowed to listen to secular music you know she kind of had to sneak in the rick james that she was exposed to but 
you know, singing with their sisters. And apparently, like, one day, I think they, they tell the story in the behind the music, like, they just came out in, like, perfect five-part harmony. or It was just this <laughs> magical thing where they were able to sing. So there was never not going to be a thing you know, should they pursue a career in music where it wasn't all five of the Braxtons together. So they have this idea, they they get a record deal, they release a single that flops. Babyface and L.A. Reid heard the song and they liked it and they said we want to give her the deal so they so basically they plucked tony out of this group and they set about trying to find music for her or to make music for her so right let's circle back to babyface for a second because i think the important thing that we need to establish here is that tony is extremely tied to babyface so this is like one of those examples of like an artist where like the producer and songwriter is like so integrally tied to her and to her success and her story that i think is something i'd like to readdress with you later down the road about whether that ultimately benefited i mean i think there's many good things that obviously came out of that their chemistry is clearly singular and yet at the same time i do think tony uh a i think felt constrained by them and also struggled to find her musical center outside of working with them and i think that bears itself out through her career and also to the fact that like in her most recent swing of her career she's sort of circled back to working with them tony's not a writer that's the other thing that i think we need to establish here tony is the type of diva and this is a common trope of these divas at this time that mariah is truly the exception to which is that they are not songwriters these women are not like that's not what they're here to deliver they're here to deliver like the performance the voice the, the whatever the drama but it's not really about sort of like them being like Joni Mitchell and sitting down and writing songs. So yes. what? It, so where do we hear the origins of like Babyface's sound moving towards kind of the like ballad-driven sound that they come to on Tony Braxton's debut? Ballad-driven and then sort of these like sexy, as I heard them refer to, like champagne and uh, and heartbreak right. songs, uh, R and B songs. Like where do we hear the, that happening before Tony's debut with Babyface? As he's producing for people, he's producing up tempos and ballads. So you can hear, you know, Roni and Rockwitcha. Right, Bobby Brown. And also, what I'm thinking of in my head are those massive boys to men songs. And then, of course, yeah. the majestic Tevin Campbell songs Baby First made. So these are the Babyface songs that I feel like are more or less setting the table for Tony Braxton's sound. Tony then emerges on a Babyface written song on the soundtrack for the movie Boomerang, which is a big hit in the summer of 1992, I believe. And it's on a song Babyface wrote for Anita Baker called Love Shoulda Brought You Home. And I feel like it's quite an uh, emblematic Babyface song, an emblematic Tony song in which to meet this new artist.
let's talk about Love Should Have Brought You Home in terms of like that being Tony's breakthrough single. Like, how does that help us establish like what a Tony Braxton song is? I mean, it's literally a line from Boomerang, which was, you know, which which was in my world that summer, like the most important album that was released. It was just the biggest thing. Right. And it's unique in that Babyface, and he'll do this a few more times, gets basically Babyface and Ellie Reed get the a soundtrack album to fill essentially do this you know and so it's they produced and wrote just about everything on it i think there's one or two tracks that they didn't clearly it's it's a vision of of what the soundtrack should be right and there's a there's a line in boomerang in which uh halle berry uh, says love should have brought your ass home yeah (laughs) you know i'm sick and tired of men using love like it's some kind of disease you just catch love should have brought your ass home last night and so it, clearly this is the song that it's based on. Right. And it's, you know, Tony being sad, left home alone. Right. Uh, <laughs> pining for her object of desire. Which like really becomes like the Tony Braxton motif. I mean, it the does. Thing about, Tony is later dubbed the Queen of Heartbreak. And I just find it like absolutely hilarious that her first song is called Love Should Have Brought You Home, which is essentially this like really sort of like almost pathetic sounding song of her sort of like sitting at home being like, where are you? Why aren't you coming home? Like why, you know, I, like uh, if you really loved me, you'd be here. And, exactly. Um, and followed up by the debut single from her debut album, which is un- literally called Another Sad Love Song, which is yes. genuinely hilarious because you could kind of call any Tony Braxton song in the entire discography Another Sad Love Song if you wanted. Although it, it it does have that kind of like postmodern, she's not she's not calling this song another sad love song, even though you read the title and right. that's what you think. Right. She's hearing this in in her in her music. Uh, Mariah did very much the same thing, and we belong together when she's listening to Bobby Womack and Babyface. Right. I love when a pop song acknowledges that other pop music exists as like a force to inform your emotions because that is real life, you know. Meta, 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 meta. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, but mm-hmm. uh, you know the um. But another sad love song, ironically enough, is more of a mid-tempo kind of thing. Right. It's yeah. got it's got more of a swing. It does. It, I mean, it's it's got like the the swing beat as as muted as it is. bit more oomph to it than say love should have brought you home right Uh, but it's still this sort of like motif that i think is really important for us to like illustrate for people which is like most tony braxton songs especially during this early peak of her thing are really centered around a heartbroken sort of like sad woman like in a codependent relationship with a man like these are codependency anthems like i mean the next her next single after that is called breathe again which is literally the hook of it is like if our love doesn't sustain i will literally drop dead (laughs) 
Yes, and there's something like delicious in that melodrama to me because Breathe Again is just so miserable that I find it kind of astonishing, you know, just like it is. It, I don't know. There's something. It's like it's like a good cry without having to cry. You know that like feeling of just catharsis. That song is that to me. Well, that's the thing about the R and B of this era, and I think something that Tony's so emblematic of is it is melodramatic feeling on an operatic scale. I mean, these yes. are not unlike the R and B today. Like unlike if you're sitting and listening to a SZA song, which is all about like intimate personal detail, like rendered in right. like intense lyricism. These are big, broad, like semi non-specific songs that are all about this like sweep of like melodramatic emotion that is lifted yes. by melody essentially like and these massive melodic choruses yes and you know one thing about the whole babyface connection is that i really get a sense when i hear this early work that she was essentially his avatar she sings a lot like him she does a lot mm. of kind of like the same curdly kind of voice things there's some story to be told that's never been told particularly well of men specifically men in r&b writing music from a woman's perspective as clearly the way that they express themselves and having you know women sing this for them you know prince uh the dream is you know huge it doesn't strike me as just I'm trying to get a gig. I'm, I want to make some money. Right. The, it's like Feels a venue expressive. for the femininity. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And is it sort of, is Tony seen as an avatar in this period? I mean, how is the public receiving her? You know, there's two things I want to talk about. Yeah. One is Tony's sort of distinct contralto voice that differentiates her from Mariah and Whitney in a lot of ways. Yes. And also her see, being seen as an avatar. Because I think Mariah was definitely seen as an avatar, but I think sort of this... Uh, which is was very unfair, especially considering that Mariah was writing all of her own music. But the uh, the thing about Tony is, I think that's sort of a thread I want to make sure that we tie together here for people is that her connection to Babyface obviously is generating hit after hit. I mean, these records are huge. I just want to be clear for people that this debut album has, I think, five hit songs on it. It has "Love Should Have yeah. Brought You Home." It has another sad love song it has breathe again it has seven whole days it has you mean the world to me it has how many ways i love you i mean these are like iconic uh songs of the of early 90s r&b and crossover r&b yes yes the two things i want to ask are how is she seen at this time is she seen as an avatar for babyface is she seen as like lacking in credibility in that way or like how are she perceived how is she perceived in the context of the other divas and how are they all perceived at this point in that way I, you know, I don't think it was that easy to, unless you were paying like super, super close attention to kind of target her in that way because Babyface was all over the place at this point, you know, and it would only right. continue to be more so. So, yeah, like Water is Wet and an R&B singer is singing a Babyface song, you know, in 1992. I don't, and, and there wasn't, it was, I think it was just enough at the time to show up with an incredible voice and really good songs and, and people didn't really like people weren't like reading into the like into it like they do now. Exactly. Well, there wasn't really a forum like Twitter to do so, but right. also or Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But also it was you know, it was a simpler time in general where there was just this idea that we like good songs sung by good singers and here we go with this. So, you know, there was nothing like super compelling about her image. I don't think, I think it was just the quality of the material and the voice. 
Yeah, and like she's she's never been cool. I mean, yeah. like Mariah became cool at a certain point. Yeah. Or her own version of cool. Right. I think that um, you know, that's still like a glossy like diva who like yeah. lives in a Disney fantasy. But right. the but the uh the thing about Tony is these songs are super duper adult contemporary. Yes. Like they are not cool songs. For that's the most right. Part. And and unfortunately, like if you want even something with like so much as a knock, like like Babyface's Babyface got more beat oriented as time went on you know red light special kind of knock yes another interesting contrast i feel like that goes on here is that tony is more squarely r&b and more squarely focused i feel like at black audiences than whitney and mariah were in that in this particular period yeah it was kind of like it wasn't there there didn't seem to be any kind of major moves to cross over it was more like well at the time by 92 r&b was crossing over so it was like you didn't have to do it it would just cross over and you could be r&b right so it's like for a very, very short period of time in the early 90s, you could just be a straight-up R&B singer and be also a pop star. But it was short. Yes. I think another thing that we should point out about Tony, besides the heartbreak, is there's something extremely sexy about what Tony Braxton does and yes. very sensual. And I think that's driven by the contralto voice, right? Yes. The, the sultry is the voice, is the word that you often hear. And, and, and also, you know, not cool... But also there was something mellow about it, even when mm. she si- she sings the shit out of everything. But it's not right. ever annoying, I don't think. And I think like it was widely perceived as never to be annoying in the way that like Mariah was perceived to be annoying, or even maybe Whitney, or right. that like, like the histrionic of- thing. Yes, this it, it never it never just it never gets to that frequency because her voice is so low. Like her, her gusto always sounds justified, you know? I, I also some, I was thinking as I did my listen through this week that the feeling is more prevalent to me. Like she's more deep in something real rooted and authentic in her feeling body in those early records than Mariah is on those first few Mariah albums, which are truly just like vocal, like a showcase of vocals. I feel like Tony's like the thing about the queen of heartbreak. And the reason I think that she lends herself so well to those songs is because there is something palpably almost um, there's pathos there from the beginning. There's something tangibly heartbroken about her that comes across in her singing from day one. Yes. Yes. And, and, and I think that this entire kind of like, all of the effort that you hear in her music apparently translated to real life because Ellie Reed on the behind the music said she did every little thing we asked her to do in terms of the promotion. So it's just this kind of ethic, a work ethic really that she's attacking with. But that also somehow makes it feel kind of sad. Like I, I sort of feel like most like Mariah and Whitney have these narratives like Mariah. First of all, Whitney always seemed like a fucking boss. And uh, Mariah has this whole narrative of like reclaiming her career that like, you know, is so integral to our understanding of who she is as a person. Whereas Tony, there's always, there was always something sort of vulnerable about Tony that I think like added layers of depth to her vocals, even on her early songs, but also like kind of 
derailed her career in some ways, I think. Yes. That same quality. Yes. Um, so let's talk about Secret. So three years later after the debut is like this massively successful album. And, you know, this is an era for the children out there where like someone put out an album and then worked an album for like two and a half years and like singles continued to like pop off. Like we don't see album cycles like we did in the 90s anymore. But just to make it clear to people, we're talking six top 10 R&B hits three top 10 billboard hot 100 hits breathe again hits number three you mean the world to me and another sad love song go top 10 so this is just an absolute blockbuster album that is spinning off hits for years after its release and then she records this second album secret so what's happening on secrets and i think secrets is defined it's her biggest album it's by far her most successful it's like one of the definitive r&b pop albums of the 90s i want to zero in with you on the two definitive songs of secrets which are her the two number one hits unbreak my heart and you're making me high because i feel like there are two very emblematic things of exactly what we've been talking about sort of like the two sides of tony's personality the like melodramatic heartbroken diva singing a ballad and then sort of this sultry sort of club banging chanteuse that we get on you're making me high What's happening musically overall on Secrets that's either similar or different to the debut? Well, I think those songs are a perfect way to exemplify what's going on, which is that she was both pumped up and watered down. You know, uh, the, 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 the up-tempo songs had more of a dynamic range, more of a bass of, of a low end, and mm -hmm. a lot of the ballads the beats kind of drop out in a way and they just become, it, it's not just like adult R&B. It's basically just adult contemporary. I mean, Kenny G is on this album. Yes. On a song yeah, that was released as a single, actually. Yeah, you're so right. Like, this album is totally the emblematic, like, biggest album that an R&B singer could make at this time because it has both, like, the club-banging heat rocks that we love, but also has so much slock and cheese. I mean... Yeah, I mean, like, even on Break My Heart. On Break My Heart, which is a <laughs> David Foster production and a song yeah. written by Diane Warren. It's just like one of those people that can like rewrite ways to say the same exact thing and yeah. be like really brilliant about it. Yeah. So like, but Unbreak My Heart is a brilliant way to say that thing that's been said a million times at this point in this very venue of pop music. She still figured out a way to do it a little bit differently and like have that hook in there. So props to that. But the song is just, you know, it's, it's flabby and ridiculous and it's, it's, you know, is it, it is it camp? It somehow like misses the, the the desperation of breathe again. It feels a little bit more like pantomime. 
Yeah, well, it's breathe like, again. Breathe, there's there's nuance. There's nuances to breathe again that make it feel more human. Whereas unbreak my heart feels like absolute drag performance of emotion. Totally. One of those, I mean, they, there's actually like a, a, a feature, something to be done, just a collection, a listicle, if you will, of like giant hits that the singers hated on first listen. Tony did not like Unbreak My Heart. She called it a little Disney. <laughs> right. Well, accurate. She is correct, I would say. She is. But it's very much like Celine Dion did not like My Heart Will Go On. Uh, yeah, there's another one. Aaliyah too. hated Are You That Somebody? That is, that's one I know. You know, and, and also I'd say in spite of sort of like some of the knocks we're giving to Unbreak My Heart right now, it is still like an emblem of a certain thing that's like worth existing. Like there's just totally. something about the utter melodrama. And it says so much about the time period. It's like that it kind of shit would never fucking work. Like our society has altered so much it's to crazy. be all about this sort of like performance of authenticity, this performance of nuanced realness like that we need from our pop stars. Whereas like back then it was just like, no, you could take this like disnified sort of like broad melodramatic goop that really is a, a wonderful showcase for her voice. I mean, she sounds fucking epic. On she it. does. It's insane. She does. I mean, it, is, it really takes you to that. Like when she hits that final chorus and she goes, say you love yeah. me again. Yeah. I mean, it is really, obviously, I'm not going to do it justice here, <laughs> but it 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 is something to celebrate, like, even in its goopy, melodramatic, like, pure, campy balladry that is, frankly, something glorious to behold on a certain level. Yeah, no, definitely. And it is really wild to think that, like, you know, at a certain time, this was a no-brainer. This was, like... Uh, it doesn't matter that you hate this song, Tony. You're going to record it, and it's going to be a massive hit. And we know that because we know what the market is like. I mean, I, I feel like I knew that hearing that album because it was the second single. And so hearing the album is like, okay, so of course Unbreak My Heart is going to do it. Um, and it did. I mean, just like, what was it? Number one for like 11 weeks or something like that. Yes. I mean, it was, it was like, one of the biggest hits of the 90s. And yeah. what I guess is frustrating about Unbreak My Heart as a Tony Braxton fan is that that is the song that everybody remembers. And to me, it's so unrepresentative of like what makes Tony Braxton a great artist in right. most respects. I mean, right. it hits one thing, which is that she like has this great contralto voice but like it's not like what i turn to tony braxton for like in terms of like if i'm in it, like it wouldn't even be in my top 15 tony braxton songs right on the flip side of that as we were sort of getting at earlier is you're making me high another right. number one hit which has held up fucking amazingly yeah. and is absolutely like just one of the great r&b records of that time period so what's why is what is a what is you're making me high represent about what tony does well there was a little bit of a a tiny little disco revival that happened in R&B in the 90s. Mm. Janae's, uh, Hey Mr. DJ. Everybody moved 
arguably Groove Theory's Tell Me, and um, I, I don't think that You're Making Me High has a total four on the floor, but I think it's like three on the floor. Like it's basically like they could have let that be a disco song. So there's something mm. up that's like extra propulsive about it. It has the swing, you know, but it's got just a little bit more oomph than you're used to hearing yes. at the time. So it feels uh -huh. really fresh. just one of those i don't know there's like a special listening room in heaven reserved for yeah. those songs that like hit in may as the weather's getting nice i think a fast love by george michael being in this subgenre and there's yeah. just something <laughs> about that whole like you know anything is possible it's the sound of hope and that's yes. what you're making me high is to me and also like and, and she got to be a little bit sexy too i mean there's a reference to her private parts oh yeah it's so. very sexy i mean that synth noise is like the siren's call her image a little bit in the video features her lusting after sexy men well and i mean the groove of you're making me high is just like i mean it is hypnotic in that sense and it's quite affluent with actually with like a lot of the hip-hop sound of that time i mean it has the groove of like on warren g's regulate or something it like was that. a clear black night a clear white moon warren g was on the streets trying to consume some skirts for the e so i can get some phones rolling in my ride chilling all alone just hit the east side of the lb it's got that synth that that, that very high kind of like gangster rap synth line that dr <laughs> dre exactly <laughs> do, 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 do. yeah so it feels i mean like you know like you said tony braxton was never cool but this song was kind of cool cool this is a cool song and it is hell i mean <laughs> fucking it just i mean there's like you're making me high is one of those songs where it's like no matter when it comes on it's like never a song i do not want to hear like yeah. what it's just it's just timeless and it really represents i think what she does so well and what babyface does so well like it is just absolute oozing like sultry, groovy R&B with melody. That's just like, you know, undeniably perfect song, like just slam dunk. So she really had two records on this album that while like extremely different, like really represented like two things that were happening in this time period. And you can really see like the influence of Unbreak My Heart on songs like Mariah's My All. I mean, this sort of like Spanish guitar yes. sort of ballad. I give my all to definitely hear you're making me high on a song uh, on you know some of those later period like velvet rope janet jackson songs i mean like there's like these, these are like two emblematic influential sounds of that time period it's true although neither my favorite song on the album is actually as much as i like you're making me high 
Um, yeah. I love me some him is just what does oh. it for me. So Secrets is a fucking smash. I mean, this album is multi, multi, multi platinum. Um, Tony Braxton becomes, you know, a massive crossover star in this era to rival some of the other divas that we're talking about. You would think that she's, you know, I, I mean, you maybe you know better than I, like how she's after Secrets, how she's perceived versus like Mariah and Whitney at that period. I mean, Whitney's like not quite like is a little post peak by the time Secrets come out and like Mariah's in her transitional period. Um, so this is really a big moment for Tony. Yeah, I, I mean, I I felt like at the time she was as big as anybody. But she's just like one of. I feel like secrets at the time it just kind of cemented her like okay, one of the greats. Like it didn't take that long, but she is. That said, maybe I should have known better watching what happened with Paul Abdul. Very very similar right. career check trajectory where you know right. very successful first album. Uh, Smash right. second album. Obviously, Tony's was yes. bigger. Paula had right. two major hits off of her second album, a few others. Same with Tony. And then it's kind of, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but I would it say is. It's slightly different because you can sort of see the steam coming out of that Paula Abdul thing after yes. that second album, whereas the Tony second album was just bigger it than is. the first. Bigger it is. by and far. Paula Abdul, it was always kind of like, well, she got lucky, whereas Tony, it never felt like she got Obviously. lucky. Yeah, because of the vocal thing. Because of the vocal thing. But then her career takes a fucking huge hit because she gets into this label dispute. So essentially much like the infamous story, I think that a lot of people know about TLC making basically $0 off of crazy sexy cool, which was the biggest album of the nineties or one of them. Tony also has that on the same label. On the same label, LaFace TLC were as well. Uh, yeah, you know, it doesn't need you don't need a ruler to draw the line, right? So what happens? Do you have the gist? Like, can you give us just kind of the broad overview of what goes on there? So the broad overview is that, uh, you know, according to Braxton's management, the two albums grossed $170 million because they sold something yeah. like 20 million copies. Right. And, and it should be noted that this is a phase when albums still made money. Exactly. I mean, this is not a phase that we currently live in anymore. And so Tony says that she has seen just $5 million. Now... <laughs> I mean, uh, okay. I think I read somewhere it's, that she saw like $171 or something crazy like that. She told, she, I mean, it, it's weird because she's never really like set out and really explained exactly what happened. Basically, right. she, basically, Tony Braxton looked at Tony Braxton's career and said, okay, that seems like a person who should be making, you know, <laughs> five times that amount and live like that. And then it turned yeah. out that she actually didn't make that much money and she had overspent but apparently her deal was really bad in terms of the touring costs that she was entirely uh responsible for you know right she was on the hook to like pay back every single expense that the label paid out for her exactly and her diva artist like that is a lot of fucking money and it's not always that drastic it's sometimes right. you know obviously royal obviously advances are such that you end up paying back a lot uh right. not like the lion's share in the way that tony braxton did you know right. part of the problem as you said before is that most of these songs she did not write so yes which is do? how artists make th- this is something that's important to lay out for people i think just generally speaking is 
the way artists make money on songs, and this is true to this day, is your publishing deal as a writer. I mean, yes. they, that you make way more money as a writer of a song than you do as a performer of a song. So, which that's is fucked why up, like, I think. I agree, but that's why someone like Mariah is sitting on a fuckload of money because yes. literally Mariah wrote 19 number one singles. Like, just, you know. And and it's why Whitney <laughs> Houston had $20 million to her name when she died, which is like, right. you know, which was fine. Obviously, Whitney was not in the poorhouse, but you think about the, the, the amount of space Whitney Houston took up in culture and it's like really that's it and it's like yeah that's and it. i think this was a this was an era of label credit like the labels were bigger than ever yes. and they were able to be i think more predatory than they ever were before totally. because they were fucking fat cats and the music industry had never been bigger they were never selling more records and the lack of transparency i mean there you can't really account for the fact like how much we as fans know and i guess we as quote-unquote aspiring artists might know about the way this shit works i just think was not available to the average new artist artist in 1991 or whenever the fuck exactly so ew had this uh, i think it was a cover story tony braxton a star is broke in late december i believe this means december 97 because this was yeah yeah this was published in february 20th february 20 1998 in late december Mm -hmm. braxton was informed that what she thought was a six hundred thousand dollar line of credit from the republic bank was already used to cover overdrafts in january she learned that a concert tour in europe last fall had gone into the red that she owes her business manager over four hundred thousand dollars and that she's in debt several hundred thou to managers (laughs) and lawyers no longer in her employ the total she she owed was 2.8 million Oh my God, poor Tony! And then she, is this when she went on Oprah and like revealed all of that? That was so sad. That interview is truly. I mean, talk about unbreak my fucking heart. Do you take responsibility for the situation that you're in right now? Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Because it's my fault. Because I. It's my fault because I trusted and I believed and I. They gave me these people. It's okay. And, I know no one. I went to college to be a school teacher. Uh-huh. And I came to Atlanta and I met all these wonderful people and I trusted them and they believed in me and my talent. And I was like, they have to but be like... But you trusted so them with your money. I know, right? I really did. You did? I really did. So you yeah. didn't like handle all your checks and sign all your checks? I didn't do that. You know, it's... I thought I was on top of everything because I like to think I'm a smart person. Uh-huh. So, I'm on so the career never fully recovers because she has to end up, she takes up four years off between secrets. Like to have an album as big as secrets and to take four years off after it is you yeah, know, you a risky move yes. to make. Yes. Music changes quite a bit by the time. It does. It's like by the time she comes out with the heat in 2000, you already have Britney happening. The boy bands are happening. Yes. Destiny's Child is happening. I mean, it's the sound of that sort of AC R&B of Babyface and Tony Braxton has really gone out of style and now it's all about right. this other shit. R- R- Mariah's making hip hop at this point. It's right, like, Mariah's yes. fully in her fully in her rap features phase. Okay. She wanna shop with Jay, play box with Jay. She wanna And so Tony comes back, but she does have one last smash record. Yes. He wasn't man enough. By, which is produced by Dark Child, who is on a fucking hot streak of all hot streaks at that time. I mean, we're talking about, yes. you know, uh, Say My Name. Jennifer Lopez is If You Had My Love. The Boy Is Mine, all the great Brandy records. Yes, 
end. So he wasn't man enough, you know, does not sound, unlike any of the other Tony Braxton songs, and we've done, I, I think we've done a good job here of setting up like what a Tony Braxton song usually deals with, heartbreak or sort of sultriness. Right. He wasn't man enough is genuinely the only fun song in Tony Braxton's <laughs> discography that's literally like a kiss off song, yes. which is like what a lot of these Dark Child songs are. Say My Name is like a fucking kiss-off song. Yes. These R&B artists now have sort of flipped this sort of sad girl narrative into more of like this kiss-off music. I mean, that's the ver- version of female empowerment that we're getting at this time. Who do you think I am? Don't you know that he was my man? But I chose to let him go, so why do you look like I care about him? So he wasn't man enough. What is like? What is what's happening? And he wasn't man enough. And like, why is that Tony's last real smash hit out, uh, single? I, I mean, as usual, she attacks it with gusto. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, it's almost at this point, it almost is hilarious how deep her voice is. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Didn't he tell you the truth? She tells a funny story, and I might put it in here, where, like, Dark Child had the entire demo, like, an entire octave lower than her voice, and she was like, come on, man. She was like, my voice is not that low. The key was wrong. It was too low. Rodney thought my voice was even lower than what it was. I'm like, Rodney, what am I? You really think I'm Barry White? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it's another Dark Child smash, you know? It's it's just, I mean, it was... It's a great song. It is. It's a fucking great song. It's a great song. have no fucking idea what she's saying the entire time like literally like the lyrics are she's like but it's it's a it's a it's a big hit song it's her last top 10 single she releases her album the heat her third album which has another r&b radio hit called just be a man about it And he wasn't man enough. The heat, and I guess to some degree, just be a man about it, are just kind of like the last moments where Tony is really a pop star. Yes. And I think that I think that then we kind of enter a period of like really bleakness, like through the 2010s, where she her next album, More Than a Woman, is like pushed out by the record label when she's pregnant and she doesn't have time to promote it. She has this amazing Neptune's lead single called Hit the Freeway. Which should like have been a peak hit. Era. Should have been a hit. She sounds fucking amazing on it. It's like a perfect Neptune's beat. She said the label looked at her pregnancy like a disease. And so I think that there was actual like acrimony there. And it was like, we're not going to promote you because you idiot went and got pregnant, you know? 
Yeah, it's a lot of... Mis- I feel like a lot of the sad aspects of Tony's, like, professional side of her career are, like, like the, you know, her business side of her career are really rooted in a lot of, like, racism and misogyny, and she was yeah. really a victim. Of, like, she was never really able to find, like, the empowerment aspect of it that, like, Mariah was able to, like, re-seize her narrative and, like, redrive the thing. But I think the other part of this is that, unlike Mariah, it's, like, Mariah's longevity I think is so rooted in her ability to make her own songs I mean this is like like there's it can't be said enough like Mariah ultimately she was her biggest ace card Tony Braxton needed the support of a system in order to like generate hit music in a way that like Mariah Carey unlike most big voice divas like she's really the exception to that rule in a sense. Yeah. I think Tony, you know, it probably is no coincidence that she came on the scene as a sort of baby face avatar. And right. she uh, like, what, what is her identity? I, well, I, exactly. What I wanted to say here a little bit is that I do think part of the narrative of these sort of floppier uh, post heat records is that she actually like didn't she at the time she was like I don't want to be shoehorned into this adult contemporary mode which is really funny because it's really right. what works best for her right. I want to make cooler music I mean that was like and what's what I think is kind of like the the uh, the downfall of some of these like mid period Tony Braxton albums which is like more than a woman in 2001 Libra which is a better album in 2005 and then uh Pulse in 2010 are that like her trying to make cool trendy sounding songs with like trendy producers he wasn't man enough notwithstanding are like you just don't want to hear that from her like that's not what you're turning to Tony Braxton for and it's like it sounds awkward listening to her like sing on a Manny Fresh beat You know, it's, 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 she's not cool. That's what I kind of was like getting at earlier. You know yeah. what I mean? I think that's yeah. part of what went wrong musically on some of these albums. Yeah. And you, and you do have to wonder, you know, how long she would have had anyway, if she didn't have these problems, just as a singer, especially the landscape is changing, whatever. But even, you know, in, in the seventies, people had a hard time just i mean aretha had a hard time in the 70s you know aretha had like a few hits after the early 70s and that's it so like so yeah you you usually have like a six to eight year period exactly you know, once you explode yeah. exactly like, unless 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 you're one of these legendary artists basically. and just you know or like so creative that like you're just generating stuff constantly that needs to come out like you know that urgency that creative urgency i don't really got get a sense that there was that that was ever present really in Tony Braxton. She's a performer. She's a singer. It's a great right. thing. She's an She's artist. So old but that's what she does. Performer. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. That's that's so true. And like that's you know, Mariah's comeback in two thousand and five was driven so much by exactly what you and I were both saying, which is one, her songwriting prowess and her yeah. ability to tap into like the sound that she created and yeah. like crystallize that on songs like We Belong Together or Shake It Off or it's like that. And yeah. uh and 
and also I think Mariah is the type of artist that like she has to be creating music all the time. Like that's exactly. just who she is. Right. And Tony Braxton isn't it's it's a different kind of thing. She's that old school diva in the dress at the microphone where it's like I'm here to perform but it's not I'm not a, she's not a songwriter, she's not a, you know, she's not it, it, it and her biggest hits are broad. These are broad 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 songs. I mean, the other thing about Mariah is like if you look at a song like We Belong Together, she moved out of that melismatic balladry into these kind of rappy, singy, intricate, yeah. lyrical, cadence songs that were like much more personal and idiosyncratic. Yes. You know, I think music as a, 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 a overall, I mean, there's been ups and downs in this, but especially right now in 2021, we're in a very, very, very authenticity, idiosyncratic moment in pop yes. music where like every, it's so much less about having great melody. It's so much less about the hook even being amazing. It's literally all about like, does, is this authentic? Does the person like show us their weird idiosyncrasies in their music? Yes. Like that's so much more important than it, it is having these structurally sound perfect like radio hits, which like 100%. was what Tony was good at. <laughs> totally. So we have this series of albums throughout the 2000s more or less that are kind of non-entities in terms of commercial impact. Then Tony obviously has her whole period on her reality show, which I don't want to spend a ton of time on, but she goes, she does this reality show. I think it gives her, uh, you know, a place in culture. The reality show is a hit. Uh, I'm not, who knows whether that's something that she wanted to do or that she, maybe she needed to do for money. But the bottom line is the show becomes a sort of post-Kardashian celebrity family hit show that also launches her sister Tamar to actual more musical success at that point than Tony does. But her music career throughout the, the 2010s is more or less, you know, while I think we both like songs on certain of these records, especially Libra, there's not much to say about it in terms of commercial impact. So then Tony has like, you know, not a comeback, but I think like a, a musical career sort of like, um, upswing re, yeah, uh, like just like a, uh, 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 a credibility upswing, let's say. Like yeah. after having a lot of albums that are sort of just like passed over, completely forgotten, like whiffs, she has this album that she releases. She finds Babyface again and they release this duet album called Love, Marriage, and Divorce in 2014, uh, which is, you know, a moderate success but gets like Grammy nominations and to me I think is a, is a very enjoyable return to sort of what they did in the 90s together and their chemistry is palpable. So love, marriage, and divorce. Yeah. Firstly, it's it's a Grammy winning album. Like, yes, we can't forget that Tony is a Grammy darling, and that she, you know, even after this record was nominated for more Grammys for for subsequent projects. The thing about it is that it's completely fine with being old people music. It is, yes, you know, right, <laughs> urban AC. It is adult R and B. It is not chasing any trends. I just wish listening listening back to Love, Marriage, and Divorce, which I also think is a very solid album. I just wish that it it had a classic babyface Sonic mm. motif happening. It's fine that it doesn't, uh, right? 
I think it's a great album. And yeah, as you said, it, she chilled out with trying to have trendy records. Like she, if you go listen exactly. to Pulse and you go listen to like, you can hear her trying to make a halo. You can hear her trying to make a yes. one thing. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, that, like, you know, whatever. Right. Like, exactly. Like that go, which like, as I think we, this brings us back to our Madonna discussion a little bit. Cause it's like, what do these divas do when they're in this era of yes. their career? And like, yes. usually the answer is like, chill the fuck out. I don't know if you picked this up, but I went through and just listened to her discography top to bottom. And one of her, I would say, I would argue, besides a a few kind of like ad libs that she does repeatedly, I would say like one of the most distinguishing things she does vocally is this woo. She's always going woo. Woo. Yeah, I actually made, I don't know if you want to hear it. I don't know if you want me to play it for you now. I can send it to you. I made like a super cut of her woos. Are you fucking kidding me? You absolutely have to send that to me so I can put it in the episode. And I definitely would like to hear it now. Go to the um. Did you go to the Sex and Cigarettes tour, the one in uh that King's Theater? I did not. You, did you go? <laughs> like, well, I I want to say two things. I want to say two things. One is SWV opened. Okay. And let me tell you something about SWV. Their voices are still fucking the yeah. same, if not better. Coco can the, really sing. When, when they performed Week, yeah, it was genuinely spiritual. Like right. I. I mean, I I will never forget this moment as long as I live. It was yeah. by far the highlight of the show, and I don't just mean SWV's set at the show. Yes, Tony, yes. like barely sung any of her songs. Yeah, like, what is up with that? Brought other people on stage to sing yeah. songs. Like didn't sing the choruses. Like almost like didn't take her own musical music seriously in a way that was like really kind of bizarre. Like she kept being like, "Hey guys, remember this one? Hey guys, remember this one?" Like. Yes, bitch, we remember them. (laughs) That's that's why why we're we're fucking here. And like, (laughs) sing the whole song. Like, I don't want you to sing like a clipped version of You Mean the World to me. Like, give us the damn song. Well, and she she holds the microphone to the audience a lot. Yes. But the the thing that struck me more was just her sort of like talking down of her own material. Like, I felt like there was this energy of like, guys, like, you know, like, I know I'm an old fart and like right. these songs are sort of old. You know what I mean? Like there, it, it felt denigrating. Like there was an energy of like denigrating her material. That's sad. That like is so unwarranted. Like yeah. these songs are fucking awesome. Like yeah. I, you know, and like, of course we're all there to hear them. It's not like she's had a hit in the last 20 years. So everybody's there to like hear these great songs and there was just that energy and I think it sort of plays into sort of like looping us full circle on the conversation which there is just something sort of heartbroken about Tony that like is her musical ace card but also is like I think somewhat of like her downfall maybe as an artist and and, I mean I don't want to venture like about her personal life but like I just found myself wanting to go up and hold her and just let her know like girl you're a fucking legend these songs are fucking awesome and like I just want to hear them and just feel big big emotions
yeah. So let's talk about the pantheon. I feel like we should we should uh, dive into that discussion at this point. So yes, I am torn because I see her like I see her somewhere between like a three and a four. Okay. And my argument for that is like her first couple of albums were so huge, so successful, and there's definitely like a solid, let's say. 10 hits that we can count in that period of time between the first album secrets and 2000 like he wasn't man enough and i love me some him like that's a solid like 10 hits and i would say that's a solid seven years of relevance yeah you know but then it's sort of like the fall off the cliff after that it's like if tier four is a tier for artists that are kind of like considered like one to two hit album wonders here's how i'm gonna frame it to you is tony braxton is her career trajectory akin to katie perry's in the sense of her hit making ability in the sense that katie perry is an artist who had three big albums contained to about seven years and I feel like she's a solid tier three artist. Like, would you say Tony's trajectory is similar in that sense? I mean, I yes. don't know if that's a crazy thing to say. <laughs> yes, with the major difference being, again, with Katie, it's even more for me of a Paul Abdul, well, she got lucky thing, because at least Paul Abdul could dance. In terms of the actual career, yes, I think 3A superstars of, of your. That's what I would say. Yeah, because it's like the other thing that sort of, I mean, I feel like we have to just put on the table that like she can't get into two or one. Like there's no question about it no. because she's like, she's such a nostalgia act. I feel like to the point where it's like, if you did not grow up with this music, like you probably don't know any of it. And you, yeah. I mean, maybe Unbreak My Heart just like from CVS, but like. I don't know. I just feel like there's like her, her stature has diminished to such a degree that like, you know, I definitely do not think she could tour an arena. No. I don't think that she could like launch like a Vegas residency now in the context of like how they're working now, like where there's like real big superstars doing them. Yeah. I, 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 I right. can't, yeah, I can't see that happening. And I really do think like it's actually, she fits this, tier 3a perfectly because she's got one to three albums yes five to ten genuine smash hits yes um uh at least one album that had a major impact with many hit songs i say she has two of those yeah uh uh she defined a very specific moment or era absolutely yes. um is very meaningful to anyone who was of prime age when they she was having her moment 100 yeah uh a beefy arsenal of hits that she can still tour on yes totally and you know she was tour she sold out the king's theater which is like you know the four or five thousand people and that's not yeah. nothing not um nothing. continues to make critically regarded work i would say that that's true she really hits most of these things except maybe the vegas residency and i think that there's like a racialized dynamic because i do really feel like she means a lot more in the black community i think than she does amongst like your average mainstream like white person. Well, don't forget that, you know, in the nineties the the markets were still so divided, you know, that like you could have I mean, this is into the two thousands. You could have right. a giant R and B hit. Like Keisha Cole's love, you couldn't escape if you lived anywhere where black radio was playing. And I think that song peaked maybe at number 40, it, it might right. not have even gotten top 40 on the pop charts, which yes. just today, given the tab the way that the charts are tabulated, would not be a thing. Um, yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, there was a kind of segregation that was still very much entrenched in the markets uh, back in the day so that there could be like absolute superstars in R&B that just had a smaller profile in the greater scheme of things because they were so white oriented. Right. So I think that's true. And I think, Tony, yeah. uh, as we sort of touched on, you know, throughout this conversation, unlike Whitney and Mariah and Celine was not really like she she was closer to that R&B market. For throughout her career and always kind of geared in that direction more so than they were. I mean, like Mariah was was more squarely a pop star, and Definitely. I think Tony was kind of treading the line. All right, yeah, I think I think it's got to be three. I don't, I just, I can't, and I think four is too low because she really yeah. was so fucking huge. It's like, yeah, I don't, I don't think she belongs with like Nelly Furtado. Like, no. I think that that's that's not fair to her. And then last question, Rich, like what is like, you can name a few if you want, but what is like, just end on the one that you want us to go out on underrated Tony Braxton songs that people should hear. Okay. Firstly, her Christmas song is flawless and beautiful and wonderful and just hits it out of the park, really. I mean, I know you like, I know you like Christina Aguilera, but I do think that (laughs) Christina Aguilera's The Christmas Song is a crime against nature. Oh, for sure. It is just one of the most hideous recordings in the history of recorded media. (laughs) Tony, beautiful, lovely, love it so, so much. Um, yes. A nuanced vocal that Christina could never deliver to us, no totally. matter what she did. <laughs> There's the aforementioned "I love me some him." Uh, I, I love me some. I love me some him. Um, also, the roller skating remix of "I Belong to You" from the first album, another non-babyface mm-hmm. production. This one, Ooh. this is the remix by Soul Shock and Carlin. Mm-hmm. Incredible, love it so much. But but I will go with "Long as I Live," which is a late career banger just really really well delivered heart-wrenching in the way that we come to expect from her and um shows that she's got something to her still you know the thing is that like she might not have a lot to say but that she's got that fire and it's Mm. gonna come out you know yeah, and she's got, and there's just the vocal control and talent and like, a, and, and expressiveness. Like, she, expressiveness. Really, she really gives you emotion in a way that is palpable every single time she steps to a recording. Like, whether the song is up to snuff or not is another question. She does all the work for you. Yeah. All right. So, here's Long As I Live. Rich, thank you so, so, so much for coming back and doing this again. Thank you for having me. I love talking about Tony. Right, y'all, that is Pop Pantheon Tony Braxton. The judgment is rendered. Tony is a tier three superstar. And what a great one. I just fucking love this woman so much. And I hope you'll go listen to the Spotify Essentials playlist. The link is in the show notes and in my bios on Instagram and Twitter, which are DJ L O U I E X I V or Pop Pantheon Pod. 
Thank you so much again to Rich Juzwiak for being such a fantastic guest. Please send me any questions about Tony Braxton, about the Pantheon, about any other pop-related topics to poppantheonpod at gmail.com so I can answer them in the mini-sode that comes out next week. Please join the Discord tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Links are in the bio and the show notes. New York, LA, come see me DJ. I'll play all your favorite pop girlies at the Who Weekly After Parties in New York on the 22nd and 23rd, in LA on the 28th. All links are in bio. All links are in show notes. And until then, guys, I will see you guys next week. Have a great life. Bye-bye.